Welcome to the Keys to Change podcast with Adrian Laurie, your home for conversation about psychotherapy and personal transformation. I am here with Jeffrey Zeig. Jeff is the founder and director of the Milton Erickson Foundation. They offer therapist education in clinical hypnosis and related therapy methods. Uh, Jeff is himself a psychotherapist and a therapy teacher. Uh, He's the author of numerous books on psychotherapy and the creator of a variety of therapist conferences, including the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, which was really the first conference of its kind back in the 80s to bring therapists from a wide variety of therapy schools together to talk with one another. So Jeff, I I think you've been a great contributor to the therapy field and thanks so much for doing this and for being with me. No, it's a pleasure. How can I contribute? Well, um, I wanna get into a theme that's been important in in your teaching over the years. The idea that therapists have a lot to learn from artists. How did you come to this idea? Well, it was a long time in coming, and it developed slowly. I um, was talking to my sister. My sister's a movie maker and uh, an actress in her own right. And I said that it seemed to me that therapy and improvisation had some similarities. And I asked her, how do people learn improvisation? And so this was probably 15, 20 years ago. And she said, take the class. She was a little dismissive, but I'm a leader at following directions. So I took the class in improv and it was like a dozen students and 11 of them were really interested in acting. And when we went around the room and why are you here? And I'm here because I want to do movies. I'm here because I want to do theater. I'm here because I want to do television. Jeff, why are you here? I'm here because I'm a spy. Uh, I want to learn how you teach improv because I think there's some similarities between improv and my field. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly it clicked and I I could see that a lot of times where we try to make psychotherapy into an algorithmic procedure, like set, like a doctor setting a bone or giving a prescription for a known pathogen. And that's an algorithmic procedure. It's a cause and effect procedure. But when it comes to being happy, motivated, curious, connected, these there's not one algorithmic path for getting there. And then I started to do a, a project called Emotional Impact, emotional-impact.net, where I got a camera crew wherever I was teaching. And I found an artist and I interviewed an artist and I tried to understand how artists think about helping people to realize concepts. Like if you want to realize love, yes, you could do a functional MRI and you could understand that the nucleus accumbens septi gets activated when people are, are in love. But if you really want to feel love, if you want to have the phenomenological experience, then you read poetry and maybe Shakespeare or uh, another poet and you get the felt sense. So the distinction uh, between science and art is science is dealing with algorithmic procedures that live in the world of cause and effect. And art is dealing with impressions. 
just because you hear a musical refrain or you go to a movie or a dance concert doesn't mean that you'll feel what the artist had intended for you to feel. You know, we add lived value into the experience mm -hmm. and artists are experts at helping people to realize things, to realize love and connection and responsibility and adventure and um, a whole host of things. So I thought if I interviewed artists, I could learn more about how artists think and I could apply some of those methods to help psychotherapists to be better at their craft. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, is there art that's especially influenced you in, in your life? Well, uh, I, not, uh, unlike you who are musical and I'm not so musical in my orientation, so uh, movies were especially interesting to me because mm -hmm. movies, uh, Wagner, the uh, great uh, composer, said that opera was Gesamtskunst, total art, and it was at the time. Well, movies are Gesamtskunst, they're total art, and movies are a compilation of many different arts. And I started um, with a friend of mine and uh, looking at how do you analyze the structure of a movie when we go to the movies, we go to have an experience. We don't go to analyze camera angles or strategic development or the way in which the costume design affects us, the settings affect us, whether the director uses a fade or a wipe or a, a strong cut. But there's a grammar to how movies are created. And because movies are total art and they consist of the amalgamation of many arts, I was especially interested in study, uh, studying how movie makers thought. And I got the opportunity to meet some directors and to ask them to help me to deconstruct their process when they were creating a, a, a movie. And what is it that they were thinking? Why did they use a certain font in their titles or why did they left justify their titles rather than center them. And uh, when a character comes, uh, when you want the audience to get the felt sense that the hero is going on an adventure, the, the movement is from left to right across the screen. If you mm -hmm. want the character to get the felt, if you want the audience to get the felt sense of somebody coming home, the movement is from right to left. Now those are not stated. You don't have to state because movies are a show, don't tell medium. And you don't have to state now the character's going away. You just have the uh, conveyance go from left to right across the screen. And you have the immediate felt sense, the intuitive sense that this is, uh, the, this is a marker, a representation for going away. Mm -hmm. So I, I got very interested in deconstructing movies and uh, finding artists who I could talk to who could give me insight into how they thought about the composition of a movie. But I also met with composers uh, and uh, I met with Richard Sherman and he and his brother created the movie, the music for Mary Poppins. And I could sit with him and I could talk with him about how he developed a musical theme and try to extract principles of impact that could be 
used for psychotherapists when they have the goal of helping a client to get a conceptual realization rather than having the goal of informing a client about what is the difference between a passive and assertive and an aggressive act. Yeah. Well, Jeff, you being the founder and director of the Milton Erickson Foundation, Milton Erickson obviously had a big influence on you. For people who aren't as familiar, who was Milton Erickson? And then in what ways was he like an artist? Erickson was an artist. He was the greatest hypnotist in the history of hypnosis. Hmm. If He was the, the dean of hypnotic practitioners. Hmm. But then in the 70s, um, when there was more development of brief therapy, Erickson became known as the father of brief strategic approaches to psychotherapy. The idea is that therapy is a problem, not a solution. The solution is get the person out of therapy, living life independent of therapy as quickly as possible. And uh, Erickson was a um, one of the leaders in bringing brief therapy into fashion in psychotherapy in juxtaposition to the psychodynamic method, which is more long-term, uh, more of a long-term approach to psychotherapy. So um, I was lucky. I was 26 years old, 1973, when I met Milton Erickson, and uh, he was remarkably influential to me. It was the opportunity to sit down with a renowned master in the field, one of the greatest psychotherapists, arguably, but in my impression, one of the greatest psychotherapists in history, and have access to him from 1973 to 1980 when he died. And I built a lot of my career on learning about Erickson's way of thinking. And I, I can't prove it to any extent. Um, but normally when we read, and Erickson was a voracious reader, when we read, we don't pay attention to is this idea being presented in strategic development by the novelist. We don't pay attention to the fact that this person is using terse sentences rather than complex suspensive sentences. And is this person using presuppositions or is this person using analogies or metaphors? Because when we read, we read to get a felt sense of the storyline, but there's an inherent structure and uh, a, a student in a writing class would learn how to write a three-page sentence, one sentence that was three pages long, as a practice exercise in creating a suspensive sentence that gives you a feeling of movement. And I think that Erickson had the uncanny ability to both read and appreciate and also understand structure. Like I go to a movie and I want to understand the structure of the what the director is doing, but uh, that lasts for about two minutes. And then I'm so involved in the story that I forget about structure and I'm not, I can't follow the structural elements that are, that cohesively bring the storyline to life. Like when you're, playing music and you use a musical bridge or when you're composing music and you have a theme and you're using theme and variation. So theme and variation is a way of making a simple theme come alive and make it not boring. Well, how can you use theme and variation 
as a way of creating a, a psychotherapeutic moment that becomes resonant, where a person needs to get over a bad habit or a person needs to be kinder in human relationships or a person needs to be more oriented towards healthy activities rather than activities that lead uh, to uh, a negative consequence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I want to give the audience a, a sense of what, what this can look like. Um, uh, let me say, as, as a kind of disclosure and, and, and a little bit of a testimonial for the audience, that Jeff has been a mentor of mine for, for about a year now and has been tremendously helpful to me. He does have an amazing way of being a, a good influence. Um, Jeff, how did Erickson influence you? What's one way uh, or an interaction that you had that was influential for you to give us an idea of, you know, what this kind of approach can look like? Yeah, well, um, there was a time in the 1970s when I was a smoker and uh, I thought it was cool to smoke a pipe and that a psychologist should have a collection of pipes and uh, I was the young psychologist pipe smoker. And Erickson saw me smoking in his backyard and uh, then it was time for me to have a consultation with him. And he told me a story about a friend of his. And the friend was a smoker. But the friend was awkward because he didn't know where in his mouth to put the pipe. Should he put the pipe in the center of his mouth, one centimeter to the left of center, one millimeter to the right of center? He was awkward. And the friend was awkward because he didn't know how to blow out the smoke. Should he blow the smoke in a diffuse stream and a focused stream up, down, to the right, to the left? He was awkward. And the friend was awkward because he didn't know how to hold the pipe. Should he support it with his fingers? Should he bend his wrist? Should he um, use more than two fingers to support the pipe? I'm thinking, why is he telling me this story and just giving me this description? I'm not awkward. I've smoked a pipe for a year or two, and I'm okay with it. And somewhere along the line, knowing Erickson, I must have nodded my head as if I were in a trance, like... (laughs) There was a a moment in which I got it. (laughs) A couple of days later, I was driving home. At the time I was living in Northern California, I came to a stop sign. I looked up at the stop sign and I said to myself, I have no desire to smoke a pipe. I don't want to be a pipe smoker. (laughs) And uh, um, it wasn't that Erickson said to me, Jeff, the realities of this is that pipe smoking causes lung cancer and tongue cancer and lip cancer but that he gave me an opportunity. And believe me, he had a wonderful time telling me that description. He gave me (laughs) recognize my own reality and gave me an opportunity to re-decide what was important to me. So it was my decision to be a non-smoker. It didn't come from his imperative suggestions, but, um, once I picked up a pipe, I didn't know what to do with it anymore. I didn't know how to hold it. I didn't know uh, what fingers to use. I didn't know where to put it in my mouth. It was I, like using it, my conscious mind against my unconscious mind. And I became so awkward that I didn't know what to do with it anymore. And then he kept saying, pipe, awkward, pipe, awkward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at that young stage of my career, if there was anything I didn't want to be, it was be awkward. So was it hypnosis? Yeah, it was hypnotic procedure. Was it artistic? Certainly it was artistic. Was it unique? 
Yes, because I, I followed Erickson for six and a half years and I never saw him do anything like that again. He invented it at the moment. It was an improv. And uh, did I ask for that help? I didn't ask for that help. Did he uh, give me an opportunity to examine the absurdities of my behavior? He did. And it was entertaining and uh, instructive. And it was using techniques that were unheard of at the time in psychotherapy because nobody was doing things like that. And it, is it derived from hypnosis? A little bit derived from hypnosis. But is it an art of how to communicate something so that the knowledge that somebody has in their left hemisphere becomes a realization and the bridge right. between the land of knowing and the land of realizing is some experiential moment that makes knowledge come alive. <laughs> well, Jeff, if, if someone who's, let's say, not a therapist, um, but maybe they're in still a position of influence, they want to be a good influence, maybe they're a, a teacher or, uh, or a manager or coach mm-hmm. or what have you, um, how can they uh, make use of this understanding of, of how we can impact others uh, to, to become uh, uh, better at, at being a good influence? It's a discriminatory device. Like, do I want to communicate information, a fact? Yeah. Do I want somebody to realize something? Mm-hmm. You, you can say to somebody, you need to be a better team member. If you're a manager, you can say to someone, you need to be a more dedicated student. And you're right in the information that you're giving. But does that stimulate a realization? Oh, I can be a better student. Oh, I can be a better team member. Now, that's something that needs to be realized at the world of realization. If you practice using analogies or metaphors or storytelling um, or um, poetic phrasing, it has more of an opportunity to stimulate a realization. You know, like when Shakespeare was writing Romeo and Juliet, he didn't have to think about creating a metaphor. He says, he has Romeo say, what light in yonder window breaks? Oh, it's the east and Juliet is the sun. Now, you don't have to um, interpret that metaphor. And you can interpret in many ways that she's vibrant or that she's warm or that she's the source of life. But it's not the interpretation that you immediately get the felt sense, the realization that Romeo knows that Juliet is special to him. And we all agree universally. So if we're trying for precision, like how do you send a rocket to the moon? We need to be in the world of cause and effect and we need to understand algorithmic procedures. If we're uh, trying to set a bone or give the right medicine for a particular pathogen, that's an algorithmic procedure. But if we want somebody to realize their capacity to be healthy, to be curious, to be motivated, to be secure, to be a good team member, to be a dedicated student, then using an algorithmic procedure where there's a series of logical steps that get to a concrete outcome, where the, the outcome isn't concrete, And there's many different pathways that you could have to be dedicated or to be responsible. So the people who understand how to discriminate, is this about information? Is this about a realization? If it's about information, inform. If it's about realization, create an experiential reality that helps the person to realize. You could turn blue in the face telling an adolescent that they need to be responsible 
and you're right, yes, they need to be responsible. But if the adolescent joins a sports team, gets a job, has a pet, suddenly the adolescent realizes I can be responsible. So that there needs to be an experiential awakening to realize something. Mm. So to create an experience somehow. And we're, we live in the experiential world. We live in a world in which we understand representations, the representation of a flag or the representation of a stop sign. We respond to representations, we respond to people's gestures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, um, this is part of our limbic responsiveness, part of the responsiveness that's an evolutionary foundation for who it is that we are. And we tend to think that a lot is happening by virtue of intention and uh, conscious deliberation, but really a lot happens by virtue of how we respond to representations. So I advise people of all professions, not just psychotherapists, to study the way in which representations work in the world and to um, be able to harness those when the goal is to get somebody to, to realize something. If you can inform it, go ahead, just inform it. And if that gets you to the promised land, that's more than enough. But if you want somebody to realize something, the turn of phrase, a story, a poetic device, a metaphor, an analogy, um, a, a visual image, these are things that help to impel a realization rather than uh, a academic understanding. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that in mind, let's do one more therapist, famous therapist story. Um, I know you were you were in contact with Virginia Satir. Maybe we can talk just a little bit about who, who she was and in what ways she was like an artist in her therapy. I um, admired greatly uh, out of all of the therapists that I have seen, People like Bob and Mary Goulding, Virginia Satir, Carl Whitaker, Irv Polster. These are people who are iconic to me because they're experiential methods. So mm -hmm. Virginia was not somebody that I was especially close to, but uh, as therapy developed, there was a central core. It was about understanding, came from a European model, understand why people are the way that they are. And as therapy developed in the 1950s, there was more of an understanding of this, the way in which systems affect people. And this led to the birth of family therapy. And Virginia Satir was one of the great expositors of family therapy. It's not just that a problem exists inside a human being, it's that the relational patterns uh, can be curative or uh, detrimental so how can we create a, a relational context? Now, nobody made contact like Virginia Satir. When I had her speak at one of my meetings, everybody left this, the uh, plenary session saying she was talking to me. Mm. She had such a powerful uh, presence and was so clever and creative in her way of structuring um, little experiential events so that people would uh, have a better realization of their own capabilities. Mm. And she was a prolific writer in the field of psychotherapy and iconic in the field of psychotherapy for her contributions to family therapy. But I, um, you know, uh, she was 
really uh, remarkably uh, kind to me mm. and uh, um, somebody who uh, in my young days, I really admired for her remarkably clever ways of thinking about human systems. She was, she was a heart person and a relational person. And Erickson tended to be more like a cognitively structured um, and a wizard like. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. well, Virginia was a wizard, and uh, um, I have a, a website. Um, psychotherapyvideo.com or psychotherapyvideos.com. I don't remember which it is, but you can see some video clips of Mnuchin and uh, Satir mm -hmm. at, at that website. So, um, so she is still stands in history as one of the most outstanding therapists who's ever walked the planet. Yeah, in your description of her, I was thinking um, the how. Uh, the, how we communicate, how we interact, is, is maybe as important, if not more important, than than the what when we're looking to 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 make a certain kind of influence. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And Virginia was re the remarkable presence. You just couldn't escape from her. She was so immediately there. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, that was admirable, and I certainly don't have that innate capacity, but I model it and mirror it and try to be more Virginia-like in many occasions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Jeff, as we're wrapping up, there's a, there's a story that I've heard you tell that I, I would love to hear again. And I think the audience would find charming and informative um, if you're willing. And if not, yeah. we'll cut this out of the, the interview. But um, you told the story of the one time that Milton Erickson got mad at you. And I, I would love to hear that story again. The, the, the it time serves as a, an, an iconic experience about <laughs> how to handle anger. Uh -huh. And it was, a, it was a, done in a series of strategic steps. And it was um, that, you know, if you're composing music, you may have a theme like uh, one, two, three down, Beethoven's uh, uh, sixth sym fifth symphony. But uh, how you how you present it, how you strategically develop the theme, is uh, of interest. So it was in the late 1970s, and I'm young and I'm frisky, and I'm trying to organize the first Erickson Congress because Erickson had been my mentor without asking for any fee for a number of years, and I wanted to do something to repay the incredible investment that he made in me and I organized the Congress in his honor in 1980 and it's the late 1970s and it's late in the afternoon and I'm trying to say do you want this speaker do you want this format how do you want this to be and he says yeah and yes yeah, so suddenly I, I stop and I tend to him and he says you know it's almost six o'clock and I said well yeah yeah I know I know I'm trying to get this done really quickly and <laughs> you know uh I I'm confined to a wheelchair. Yeah, I know you've got you've had polio and you're confined to a wheelchair. And he says, you know, I grew up on a farm. I said, well, yeah, yeah, I know that history. He says, you know, I uh, can't get outdoors because I'm confined to a wheelchair. Yeah, yeah, I know. And um, you know, my way of getting outdoors is watching television. And yeah, I know, I know. And he says, you know, I love animal shows. 
I said, yeah. And he said, you know, at six o'clock, my animal program goes on television. I said, well, yeah, yeah, I know that. He said, you know, if I don't get to watch my animal program, I get angry. I said, I believe it. <laughs> now, nobody had ever been angry with me like that before <laughs> because it was always a, a pop, an explosion, and he was do de do 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 dumb. And set a clear boundary that I could respect, but did it so artfully. And, you know, if somebody intrudes upon my space, I really hope to high heaven that I remember to do something similar yeah. that um, you have the opportunity to use craft and to use art and something that you might do in music could be done in human relations. Mm. I love that story. Um, Jeff, when I watch Milton Erickson on video, um, one of the things that's really striking for me is in addition to the to the very advanced way of communicating, there's an incredible intensity of care or nurturance. That's, that's I'm not always sure how to put this into words, but I just feel so much um, passion uh, in him and and care for for whoever he's speaking to. Can you speak to that aspect of Milton Erickson? Did you feel that when you were with him? What was it like generally being with him? Uh. I, I um, felt loved and uh, yeah. it wasn't ever said, yeah. but it was um, a, a um, perfume that just permeated the atmosphere that you were intrinsically okay. And uh, yes, you would have blemishes and missteps but um, a sense of being intrinsically appreciated. And um, he was, you know, a farm boy and uh, influenced by the country doc who took care of his family and was a very dedicated physician and really wanted to be the best physician that he could be and was crippled by polio at 17 and suffered the sequela for the rest of his life and uh, with, in spite of limitations, because of limitations, he demonstrated how to make the best out of any given situation and was consistently alive to um, being the best that he could be and it made me want to be the best Jeff Zyg that I could be. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's beautiful, and I've gotten some of that from you, too, and I really appreciate that part of it. Um, well, what are you working on these days? What can we look forward to from you? Well, I, I just did a book called An Epic Life, which is uh, about 100 different interviews of professionals who knew Erickson, very entertaining mm-hmm. stories about Erickson. Mm-hmm. And that uh, can be found at erickson-foundation.org. And, uh, uh, the second book that I've done this year is for therapists about advancing psychotherapy. It's the transcript of two senior students of Erickson who came to visit him in 1955 
with my annotations. And I'm just finishing the second volume of Epic Life where I've interviewed people who knew Erickson. I have a tremendous debt to Erickson, one that can never be adequately repaid, but these are partially ways of uh, being able to keep the spirit of what Erickson brought to the world, even though he died in 1980. There's still a lot to be learned from Erickson about um, empowering human communication and style in which it can be done. Mm. So I have been uh, very good about honoring forebearers mm. conferences that I organize and continue to organize and um, trying to bring more um, clarity to understanding the steps that Erickson developed over the course of his prestigious career. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, if people want to learn more about your work in general, where can they go? Where can they find well, you? Well, go to erickson-foundation.org. That would be a good starting place. And jeffreyzeig.com is more of my, about my professional website, about the kind of uh, programs that I do. But this uh, emotional-impact.com, I think it's emotionalimpact.net. Something like that. And that has some of the interviews that I've done with uh, um, celebrities like uh, Stan Lee, the inventor of Marvel comic books. And I got to meet him oh. and talk with him about how does he set up a story for uh, Spider-Man. Yeah. And uh, uh, so they, those are some interviews that are fit the theme that we've been talking about in regard to emotional impact. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will include links to all of these uh, below in the description. Um, and uh, Jeff, thank you so much for being with me. I've really enjoyed it. Was it was a pleasure. I enjoyed the interview. You did a great job. Oh, well, thank you very much. Okay. Bye for now. Bye now.